The One Hot Minute podcast is brought to you by The Warehouse, who believe that saving the planet shouldn't cost the earth. Join them on their journey in making the sustainable affordable. Activities are changing the atmosphere. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. I want you to act as if the house was on fire. The One Hot Minute Podcast from Stuff's Forever Project. There are lots of ways to do something about the climate crisis. You can protest in the streets, you can go semi-vegetarian, or you can fly less or buy an electric car. You can lobby politicians or even become a journalist who writes about climate change issues. Or you could do this. Take a $57 billion superannuation fund to court and sue them for not taking climate change seriously. That's what Mark McVeigh did. McVeigh is an Australian environmental scientist. He's just 25, decades yet from retirement. But he wanted to know if his pension fund, Rest Superannuation, was taking climate change into account when investing his money in that of two million other Aussies. McVeigh didn't think they were, so he hired a law firm that specialises in climate change and said to his super fund, basically, see you in court. This month, the case was settled out of court. The Superfund conceded that climate change was, quote, a direct financial risk to the fund and said that from now on its managers would take it into account, plus a bunch of other concessions, including working towards a net zero carbon footprint. Basically, McVeigh won, and this case will probably force other Superfunds to change too. I'm Eloise Gibson, Stuff's Climate Change Editor, and you're listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Here's how it works. In Stuff's online video series, One Hot Minute, we give each guest just 60 seconds to tell their climate change story. And then in this podcast, we dig a bit deeper into what they said in that video. Now, Mark McVeigh isn't our guest today, so why am I talking about him? Well, because his is just the latest and one of the most dramatic examples of how activists are using the law to fight climate change. As climate change denialism starts to fade into history, activists are picking new battlegrounds, and many of those new battles involve the law and, of course, lawyers. Today's guest is one of those. Jenny Cooper is a high-flying commercial litigator, but she's also co-founder and president of Lawyers for Climate Action. Her group is asking the government to change our Bill of Rights. They want to add a bit saying that everyone in New Zealand has the right to a sustainable environment. If successful, this could have a big impact on our legal and political systems. So we asked Jenny along to explain what they're up to. Jenny Cooper, welcome to One Hot Minute. Thank you, Eloise. So we've just watched your One Hot Minute video, and you said that along with all of the rights that we're used to, freedom of religion, freedom of association, the right to a fair trial, all the good things that are in New Zealand's Bill of Rights Act, you reckon we need to add the right to a sustainable environment. It sounds lovely, but why should that be a right alongside something like the right not to be tortured? Well, because it's really the most basic and fundamental thing that there is. If we don't have a safe environment, we really don't have uh, anything. Um, we don't have the things, we don't have a guaranteed right to the things that provide us with life. And to me, that is more fundamental and necessary for all the other rights. The Bill of Rights idea has been led by the Lawyers for Climate Action, uh, which you co-founded last year. Apart from this big ambition to change New Zealand's Bill of Rights, you're also advocating for New Zealand to meet various international climate goals, and you're offering pro bono legal advice to climate activists. Yeah, it's probably 
way too much. We're, we're trying to do quite a lot, but we just sort of tried to think of things that, as lawyers, we could really bring to the climate movement, things where we could use our, uh, our special skills and really add value to so things. So let's other stop stuff. for a minute there. What is the skill set of a lawyer? What do lawyers bring to this? Well, I think uh, there's a few things. Uh, one, obviously, is advocacy skills. So especially trial lawyers, but most lawyers are used to advocating for their clients. And so we so like... fighting for a cause. Yeah, and, and making a strong argument and a, and a good case to persuade people into action. The other thing we're good at is evaluating and weighing up evidence. So a lot of cases are about well, most cases are about something completely other than law. So we all have to upskill ourselves really quickly to learn about the special area that our case is about. And often it might be accounting, it might be engineering, all kinds of things. So we're used to taking reports and expert evidence from fields that are not our own and trying to understand it and translate it into language that uh, a judge or a jury can understand. I really thought, well, I can sit down and read the IPCC report. I'm not a climate scientist, but I have confidence in my ability to understand and evaluate that material. And when you look at the evidence, it seemed pretty clear that climate change obviously, of course, is real. <laughs> the IPC is not making this stuff up. And I thought someone really needs to be out there advocating for the facts. So you've taken some time to engage with the evidence on this, but I want to know why you got into this in the first place? You work in insolvency, which is right at the sharp end of corporate law. You're a QC, which, as far as I can tell, it's like the fanciest type of lawyer. Why start a climate advocacy group? Well, I'm also I'm also a human being, and I worry about this stuff. And the real, you know, I've known about climate change for a really long time. I've worried about it. Um, when did you become aware of it? Um... I think I sort of became vaguely aware of it as an undergraduate, but it really, really when I was doing postgrad in the UK, I had quite a few friends who were scientists and there was real concern about the way the planet was going. So I lived overseas for about eight years and by the time I came back to New Zealand in 2003, I, I, I knew climate change was real and it was a real shock to me to come back into an environment in commercial law where most people were not aware of it all or really did not accept that it was real. What is the climate, if you like, inside the legal profession on this? Is it, is it still that way? Well, no, interestingly, it's not. So, as I say, 2003, I came back to New Zealand, discovered, you know, people didn't believe the science, which I found depressing and very frustrating, but I basically just kind of got on with my career and didn't do anything. And then really it was when the... IPCC's 2018 report came out. That was the one that 1. got... 1.5 degrees yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, and the one that said, well, it didn't say this, but the one that was reported as saying we have 12 years to save the world, basically, which is not quite right. But anyway, I read it and I thought, wow, you know, I've been sitting around waiting for someone to fix this. And no one has. And, you know, sort of basically nearly 20 years have gone by since I started worrying about it. And what have I done? Absolutely nothing. So that's really, yeah, what kicked it off. And, and I, I had thought that lawyers as a group were very much not interested, not engaged in it. I have one colleague and friend, David Salmon, who's done a lot of litigation in climate space, but he's sort of a little bit unusual. He gave a presentation at a conference at the beginning of last year about climate change, and it was a huge conference 
full of lawyers, and there was just this silence in the auditorium. <laughs> and so it was, it was that was it was a combination of that and reading the IPCC report and talking to some friends. We thought, okay, we have to do something. But coming back to your question, Eloise, um, I do feel that over the last two years, eighteen months, there's been a huge change, and now I think the level of engagement and understanding is actually pretty high and really good. What shifted it? Do you think? Well, it obviously wasn't just I wasn't the only one that kind of had this moment of awakening, I think, around the time of that report. I think a lot of people did because it was a real wake-up call. And I think suddenly it became normal to talk about it and to talk to each other about our fears and worries. And I, I think that just gathered momentum. And I think probably a lot of people were actually quietly worried about it, but it sort of wasn't acceptable to talk about that. And, and that's changed. I've heard you mention before a conversation that you had at home. Yeah. What happened there? Because that was really interesting to me. Yeah. Well, actually, that was probably, that was before I read the IPCC report, and it was probably one of the things that led me to read it. Um, so it was a while ago, I was at home with my partner and um and kids, and or my two stepchildren, and something came up on the news about climate change. My partner said to them, oh, your generation is going to have to fix this. Now, at the time, they're 14 and 12 now, so this was a, a couple of years ago, they were quite little, and I just said, you can't, you can't tell them to, that, that this is on them. This is not something they need to fix. This is something we need to fix. I mean, you know, here we are sitting very comfortably in our, in our house with our jobs and we have very comfortable lives. And what have we been doing for the last 20 years? Don't, don't tell the kids they have to fix it. So, yeah, that was a very, that was a real moment for me as well. And What yeah. do they think of this, by the way? Oh, they think it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, think, I think they find it mildly amusing. But, yeah, but they're, really, they're really into it. We've kind of really embraced it. You know, we, we kind of get into calculating our and buying trees and stuff, and yeah, it's great. We'll get back to some of that personal stuff in a minute, um, but just while we're talking about lawyers, as a rule, lawyers don't go out in the street with placards very often. Is it a bit of an uncomfortable mix with the legal profession? Yeah, well, actually, the, another part of the reason we started Lawyers for Climate Action NZ was because None of us really felt that, you know, joining Extinction Rebellion and chaining ourselves to things was going to be the most useful thing we could do. And that definitely would be uncomfortable as lawyers because, you know, our whole thing is we uphold the law and we generally are very rule-abiding, cautious, conservative people. Um, so we wanted to do what we could in a different way, so sort of from within the system, as it were. So to some extent... That means the discomfort is reduced because we're just doing what we would normally do as lawyers, which is advocating and lobbying. Well, lobbying is maybe not what we would normally do, but but it's very common for lawyers to make submissions on new legislation, for example. That's just bread and butter. What is a bit unusual is that this is seen as quite a political issue, and so lawyers definitely don't like to, as a rule, nail their colours to the mast on controversial issues because you're potentially cutting off your ability to be seen as a fully independent advocate on that issue in court. I personally like to think that this is beyond politics uh, and it's so fundamental that those rules don't apply. And, and you know, I've kind of sort of come to the position myself that I'm very comfortable with speaking out on it. If it creates a problem, then so be it, because, you know, this is too important to stay silent on. Paint a picture for me. You're at a, a fancy function, a cocktail party. There's a whole bunch of judges and QCs there. 
someone starts talking about climate change, maybe a little bit doubtful, do you pipe up? Are you that person? Oh, I'm afraid I am. (laughs) I can't help myself. Yes, I am. And sometimes... It can, it's not, with, you know, mixed results, I would say. It's not always, there's not always the best social lubricant, shall we say, to start <laughs> talking about, you know, the end of the world. <laughs> I try to not be a complete downer. But yeah, I, I do feel that sometimes it's important to speak up again, to, to normalise it. And also, if people start spouting things which are just wrong, I sort of do feel obliged to step in and say, well, I don't actually think that's right and you might want to look at this or, you know, it's actually been debunked 20 years ago, that particular view. So, yeah, I, I do, but but I, I, I try not to be a really bad time as well. One of the things about law is that it pays pretty well. <laughs> and one of the rules of thumb about climate change and carbon emissions is that the higher your income, the better your lifestyle, the higher your footprint. Is it a bit ironic talking about climate action with a bunch of really high income earners whose footprints are probably bigger than the average person? Yeah, I think a lot of their footprints are immense. Um, uh, Well, look, I think the fear of being labelled hypocrite is actually a real problem and actually holds a lot of people back from engaging with this issue. And so I really think it's important to take that out of it. Mm. I'm not saying that people don't need to take personal responsibility and look at their own impacts, but we're just not going to get anywhere if we if we make it personal and we make it blamey and we're trying to take nice things away from people. I mean, that it's just hopeless. So for me, I really think we need to be pushing more strongly at the system change aspects of it, which is not to say that it's okay for, you know, rich lawyers to all just drive huge remura tractors and take multiple overseas trips every year. You know, I mean, I think we've all got to look at our own behaviour, but I think that's a, that's a personal thing and I, I'm just... I do have friends who I think have held off joining us because they are worried that they will be seen mm. as hypocrites. And I think that's a real shame. You can only open your mouth if you're perfect. Yeah, and yeah. I, I just don't think that's true. None of us are perfect. I'm, I'm definitely not perfect, but I still want to try and make a difference. We're not perfect at the One Hot Minute podcast either. Now, quick quiz before oh, we no. get back yes. to the serious stuff. Right. Question number one. Earth has been warmer in the past than it is today. True or false? True. Excellent. One point. According to paleoclimate reconstructions, there have been several hothouse Earth periods, including a total scorcher about 55 million years ago when temperatures are believed to have been about 5 to 8 degrees Celsius hotter than they are today. The planet survived, obviously. Bad news was mass extinctions for Mm. the species alive at that time. Yeah, which didn't include humans. Didn't include humans. (laughs) No, that's right. We're adapted to quite a narrow little Mm. range, us humans. But the interesting thing about that big one, I thought, was that it was caused by greenhouse gas emissions. They think, obviously, not from humans because we weren't around, um, but by natural events. Okay, question number two. As of the 2020 election, how many climate change ministers had New Zealand had? Ooh. You mean how many people held that position? Yes. How many different people had had the job of climate change minister? I can think of at least two, and I'm probably missing one, but I'm going to go two. 
See, I thought it was low as well. Six. Oh, my goodness. I'm so wrong. And what's even yeah. more phenomenal? So Pete Hodgson was the first oh, way back wow. in 2002. And actually, the job's changed hands more times because both Pete Hodgson and David Parker have done it twice. Oh, wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. that, that's really embarrassing. <laughs> you know, I think it's a sign, actually, of the prominence that yeah. that role now has in society, that yeah. we think of the last couple yeah. and was a surprise to me too that it went back that far. Okay, last question. A musical interlude. Who is singing? Oh, can you take care of her? Oh, maybe you can spare her several moments of your consideration. I feel like your kids have listened to this. No idea. Oh my god, they probably have. They're gonna be mortified. It's Miley Cyrus. Oh who? dropped the single Wake Up America in her 2008 album Breakout. Sample lyric, everything I read, global warming going green. I don't know what all this means, but it seems to be saying Wake Up America. America, spoiler alert, (laughs) did not wake up. That was 2008. Still, good on her for trying. (laughs) So one out of three, which I have to say... Fairly typical score. Yeah, it's pretty average. We've had zero. We've had zero. We've never had a three. I think one and a half. 1.7. I think we gave Sean Handy 1.7. Anyway, back to questions that you will know the answer to. Oh, I hope so. (laughs) How old are you? Ah. (laughs) Uh, Well, actually, it's funny. I don't always know the answer to that. I have to stop and think about it. But I'm, I'm 47. And so you were talking before about when you first became aware of this. This was at grade school. Yeah. But it sounds as though you've really accelerated your thinking on this in the last couple of years, along with a lot of us. What do you do personally in your own life? Well, so in terms of our sort of family emissions, the biggest thing, I, we're very lucky I can get the ferry to work. And so I walk in ferry, so that's great. My partner, there's really no public transport options to get to where he works, and it's it's quite a long commute. So we decided an electric car would be the best solution. So we bought that about 18 months ago. It's awesome. We have also really cut back heavily on our red meat consumption, which was a little controversial in the beginning. But uh, Yeah, where's your partner on this? Yeah, he was really against that. But I just sort of did it anyway. And actually, it's funny, he's completely fine with it now. I think when you tell people they can't do something, they really push back. But in fact, it's not really a big deal at all. And in fact, I've really enjoyed it. It's been fantastic sort of exploring different foods and, you know, new dishes. And we eat a lot more vegetarian and vegan meals. We still eat some meat, but just a lot less. Dairy's the tough one, though. Oh, dairy's really hard. Yeah, I we really struggle with that one. Um, we do consume a lot of dairy products. Okay. What, you know, you get home from a long day mm-hmm. of being a fancy lawyer, you're knackered, your partner's knackered, kids are hungry. What do you cook quickly without meat that's actually yummy? Well, I really like chickpea curries. They're really easy. And you've got chickpeas in a can in the cupboard, a can of coconut milk, a bit of curry paste, a few vegetables. There you go. Really easy. Another really good one, which is even lazier, is bung some kumara in the microwave and do some chili beans, you know, swatties chili beans out of the tin. Very easy. Bit of Bit of cheese, maybe sneak in some dairy products. <laughs> you've got to you've got to meet your taste buds halfway sometimes, eh? Okay, so 
Can you give us some examples of where lawyers have made a difference already on this? It doesn't even have to be in New Zealand. There's a couple of really big, very recent ones. Um, both last year. So um, I'll start perhaps with the the Urgenda case in the Netherlands. So that has actually been running for a, a few years now, probably five or more years, but it got to the top court in the Netherlands earlier this year. Urgenda, where does the name come from? It's the name of a community sort of environmental group, an NGO. So they brought a case against the Dutch government, basically saying that the Dutch government's carbon emissions target and the policies they were pursuing towards that target were inadequate. So the target that the Dutch government had adopted, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it it wasn't consistent with keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees, which is what the parties to the Paris Agreement have signed up to. It was more consistent with sort of two to three degrees. Ours is two, by the Mm. way. And so the way that they pursued this case was they said that the Dutch government's failure to adopt um, a better target and and better policies was actually a breach of Dutch citizens' right to life. The European Convention on Human Rights protects the right to life in the same way that New Zealand's Bill of Rights does too. And so they persuaded the court that global warming was such a threat to human life that failure to act against it or act adequately against it infringed that right. Um, They won at the High Court, Court of Appeal, and now also the Supreme Court level. And the court ordered the Dutch government to amend its target and to adopt more hardcore policies, basically, which is amazing. So it's had a direct impact on what the Netherlands is doing. And there's there's one bit which I think is um, really powerful is the court completely rejected the idea that because the share of total global emissions, which the Netherlands is responsible for, is really small, that what it did didn't matter. And the court said, no, that's not the right way to look at it. We've got to assume that everyone is going to do their share and we have to do our share. And that means we have to cut our emissions by, you know, 40, 50 percent, whatever it is as well, even though they're less than 5% of global emissions. So thinking about the fact that virtually every government in the world, including ours, is in the same position, are we now going to see a wave of court cases against governments? I think it's entirely possible. Would you do that here? Yeah, well, possibly. I mean, don't want to rule anything in or out. But, but, I mean, look, we'd rather get there without the need for litigation. Mm. We'd rather get there because the government does the right thing. Uh, we want to see a better target. Our existing target is not good enough. So we, you're talking about our Paris Agreement yes, pledge? Yes, our yeah. nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement. It is simply inadequate and not good enough. It's currently being reviewed by the Climate Change Commission. Mm. You know, we're very hopeful that next year we will see a stronger target being adopted, but it's not consistent with doing our part to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees. One of the things that occurs to me about the Climate Change Commission reviewing this is that they will come up with an answer on whether or not it's sufficient. Presumably mm-hmm. they'll say no, because government officials have already told the minister that it's not good exactly. enough. Exactly, yeah. But the government doesn't have to follow that advice. Is this where lawyers might get involved? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Eloise. So we would say that New Zealand and, well, the government has signed up to um, an international treaty, the Paris Agreement, where it is committed to cutting emissions in a manner that's consistent with 1.5 degrees. We've now enshrined that target in law in the um, amendments to the Climate Change Response Act. So technically, they have the ability to just ignore the Climate Change Commission and not change the NDC, the Nationally Determined Contribution. But in doing so, they would be... 
we say they'd be in breach of the Paris Agreement. Um, we say they'd be in breach of uh, our right to life. And to the extent that you could argue the right to a sustainable environment already exists, it's just not one that's recognised, we'd say it's in breach of that as well. So, yeah, I think we'd be looking pretty closely at legal options if, if that advice isn't accepted. But, I, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. About other cases, I mean, I'm assuming you know if I do a Jane Fonda and get arrested for climate action, I can call you, right? You'll get me out of jail. Is that how this works? <laughs> it's not quite how it works. No, I've got your um, number now. Yeah. <laughs> you probably want to call someone else who knows something about criminal law. I'd be pretty hopeless. But yeah, so the, the pro bono side of things, it's sort of early days. It's quite a massive task to get a whole pro bono scheme up and running. But what we're trying to do is essentially match up volunteers with community groups. We've had various environmental groups come to us and and say we'd like a lawyer to give us some ideas about how we can put pressure on this council or how we could, you know, approach this issue. And so we just sort of act as a clearinghouse, really, and and put them in touch with with our members who are happy to provide their time. Some of our members have been involved with, you know, giving advice on more the kind of civil rights sort of protest issues that you're talking about. Yeah, but we're not we're not in the business really of providing sort of one-on-one advice to individuals, but um, but you can give me a call otherwise I'll do my best. Thank you. <laughs> Cuz there were I mean there were already court cases, right? EU leader Mike Smith yep. is taking action against some of the big polluters. Yep. Um, we've got an environmental group taking action against Thames Coromandel District Council um, for not declaring a climate emergency. Mm-hmm. Would you wade into something like that or are you and the people you give advice to looking for a case that fits the bill? Yeah, we don't really have a fixed view on that. So we definitely don't want to wade into stuff that people have already got covered. You know, there's lots of awesome lawyers who were doing this well before we came along and who don't need us butting in. We're not trying to muscle in on that kind of thing. Um, having said that, we do have opinions and we want to help and, you know, so so I'm not equally we wouldn't rule out getting involved. But, and as I said, we, we sort of, we are very much open to trying to find the right case where we think we could really make a positive difference and um, get some good case law, basically, get some principles laid down, which we think are going to really help moving forward. But like I say, I think, you know, litigation is um, slow. You know, the agenda case took at least five years to work its way up through the courts. We don't really have five years, you know, so we're happy to do it. We we are thinking about it, but we want to avoid it. Because outside the courtroom, there's a lot you can do that's not taking people to court. So, for example, you wrote to uh, Climate Change Minister James Shaw with your contention that, you know, we should change the Bill of Rights. And you managed to get how many QCs signed up to that? 60. Yeah. Amazing. I know. I, yeah. So hang on, there's probably a few people thinking, hang on, New Zealand has a Bill of Rights. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's not like the US Constitution <laughs> no. without getting too much into the weeds, but it, it does have some force. It matters, obviously. Yes. So um, the big difference between our Bill of Rights and something like the US Constitution is it doesn't override legislation. So Parliament can still pass an act that contravenes the Bill of Rights. But before it can do so, the Attorney General will write a report saying this contravenes the Bill of Rights. So it'll be like Parliament still needs to go ahead despite that. So it's a bit of a handbrake. It's a handbrake. Yeah. The other thing, the other way it's really powerful is that... If you are a public decision maker, like let's say you're a minister or you run a government department or um, a council, 
you can't do anything contrary to the Bill of Rights unless it's reasonable and justifiable or expressly permitted by statute. So it does mean that you have to take it into account when you're making decisions. Where you're given a discretion to make a decision, you need to be making sure your decision is consistent with the Bill of Rights. Getting this into the Bill of Rights is a a huge, possibly impossible task. Like, what has happened since you delivered that letter to the minister? Not not immediate adoption of it, obviously. Um, We've got a little bit of traction. I think it, it turned up in the Greens policy statements before the election. So we've got a, we've got support from at least one party. Um, I know that it's sort of been discussed by some of the others, but you know, I think. Obviously, with COVID and everything else, it's sort of it's it's maybe not top of people's agenda right now. But I think we will see climate really going up the agenda pretty quickly. I'm hopeful, and yeah, I think it's got some. I think I think there's a possibility there. We're going to keep chipping away, and I mean the fact that we got 60 QCs. Uh, How many QCs does New Zealand have? Well, about 120. That's phenomenal. So, yeah, it's 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 half, roughly. Signing up to something that might be seen as a bit radical. Yeah, well, exactly. It, it very much is seen as radical, to be honest, in legal circles. I know it sounds like a no-brainer, and to me it seems like a no-brainer. But like you should be allowed to breathe air and, yeah, you know, but it does live have, in a livable planet. But it's not, <laughs> the, it's not the way we've traditionally viewed rights in this country, and it's not, it's not re, it is quite out of keeping with the other rights in the Bill of Rights because mm-hmm. it requires positive action. It's not just about not doing things. It's about actively protecting Don't the environment. Don't just not torture me, but exactly. also get emissions under control and, and adapt the coastlines. Exactly. <laughs> so a lot of people would say that's reaching too far into policy. Um, and that's not somewhere that, you know, our courts have really traditionally wanted to go. But I think, oh, you know, I think we've got to the point where we need to rethink things. We need something radical. Right at the start, you talked about lawyers' skills at reading up on the evidence, but also applying the law. That, though, constrains you to applying the law that we have. If you had a magic wand, what New Zealand laws would change to tackle the climate crisis? Well, I would really like to see the right to a sustainable environment. Um, That would be amazing. Uh, I'd like to see the emissions trading scheme expanded. A tougher cap, higher prices. But just coming back to your question, though, about the law not being there at the moment, I mean, that's partly true, but there's a lot that the law can do. And so we have, as well as legislation, we also have common law. So that's things like torts. So essentially, the law that's been developed over centuries by the courts which doesn't rely on statutes. And that's always evolving and changing. So there is an opportunity there to apply those existing principles in a new way or to develop them a little bit further in a way that does address climate change. And so you you mentioned earlier the case that Mike Smith has brought against Mm. Fonterra and other major admitters, and that's what that case is trying to do. So he's using traditional existing common law causes of action. So it's essentially negligence, public nuisance and what they call an inchoate duty, which is sort of basically it's... A vague duty. (laughs) (laughs) It's sort of a common law thing that we haven't really quite worked out, you know, 
what it's called yet. Um, so, so that's a classic example of trying to push the development of existing law to cover a new situation. And similarly with, with rights, uh, so they don't just exist in the Bill of Rights, we would argue that they actually exist in common law as well. So whether or not the right to a sustainable environment actually makes it into the Bill of Rights, there's a possibility that at some stage you might see lawyers arguing that that right just exists. What's the next step on the Bill of Rights thing? Well, keep lobbying, basically. We need to do more. We need to come up with a better way to engage a bigger audience with it. So as lawyers, one thing we're really not very good at is social media. Do lawyers TikTok? Oh, no. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe some do. Um, Maybe those are the ones you need to join yeah, lawyers for yeah, climate action. Yeah, we should put a call out. TikToking lawyers, please. And actually, we're trying to work, um, well, we are working with a whole bunch of other groups as well who are much, much better at this. You know, like Generation Zero, I think, are amazing. You know, this hopefully is the, the youth climate lobby group that actually got the architecture for the Zero Carbon Act exactly. in front of the government, didn't they? They did. Mm. It's amazing what they have done. I'm really, really impressed with them. They are a great uh, group of people, great organisation. And their structure is completely different to ours. Ours is very old school, you know, because we're lawyers used to doing everything very in a very hierarchical, organised way. We have a committee, we have a president. You know, Generation Zero has a different model, which is much more decentralised. Do you think the climate movement needs that, though? Does it need more suits to balance out the, uh, the, the teenagers in the streets? Well, maybe. I mean, look, I don't know. I mean, it needs both, I think. Mm. Um, I'm definitely, I would be really worried if I felt like we were sucking the attention away from the teenagers in the streets, because I think, you know, they are the most powerful group out there, uh, and they should be. But where I think we come in is, you know, there's a certain sort of small group of media commentators who are a bit sneering and dismissive about young people and, you know, they they sort of write them off as naive and not understanding the real world. And I think that's where I think potentially the rather boring suits could come in and say, you know, this is not just about naive young people. This is actually about the science, the economic realities. Uh, actually, the grown-ups need to be doing this too. Yeah. Thank you, Jenny Cooper, for coming on the One Hot Minute podcast. Thanks, Eloise. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for this time. Thanks for listening to the One Hot Minute podcast. Don't forget to also check out the One Hot Minute video series, where you can hear Jenny Cooper QC make her 60-second pitch to change New Zealand's Bill of Rights. There are links on the Stuff homepage and from Play Stuff. If you want to make sure you catch every episode of this podcast, go subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this right now. If you have a second, give us a quick star rating on Apple Podcasts. We like five stars, thanks. Or even leave a review. This episode was produced by Adam Dudding and me, Eloise Gibson. It's part of the Forever Project, Stuff's portfolio of climate change coverage. Thanks to Abigail Doherty, Jason Dorday, Patrick Crudson and Carol Hirschfeld. More info at stuff.co.nz slash one hot minute. See you next time.